Jonathan Waters is the name most often associated with the team slipstream or as it's better known as the EF Education First Cycling Program. However, there is another name that has been with the team since its inception. That name is Alex Howes, and today we sit down with him to talk about EF's innovative alternate program, the lockdown, winning the coveted US national title, and of course, the Professional Riders Union. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as usual, I am joined by Bobby J. Bobby, it sounds like you've had a bit of a hectic week there. Yes, I did, Gus. Yes, I did. We had one heck of a week here in, in South Carolina with the Hincapie Grand Fondo and camp taking up most of my week. We had amazing weather for the camp and the event came off without a hitch. Uh, obviously, there was some pretty strict COVID-19 protocols that we had to follow. But it's been a long time since I've done any sort of event, especially of this size. And I just think that everyone really enjoyed being together. You know, when, when you have good weather and you have an event for the first time, it, it makes everybody happy. But for me, one of the, the highlights of, of doing the event itself was I finally got to meet Natalia Franco-Viegas from Team 2020. She is a, a Colombian rider that we've heard a lot about from Nicola Kramer, and um, she just stomped on it. She actually won the women's event pretty easily. So yeah, busy, busy, always going back and forth and, and trying to make the, the event uh, a success, which I believe it was. Uh, I understand weather's changed up there a little bit for you up in Colorado with some snow. Yeah, we, uh, we got a, quite a big dump of snow over the weekend, which was good. We've had some record-breaking uh, wildfires in the region uh, in Colorado. And so it was a nice relief for the firefighters, I believe, and hopefully that, that weather helps uh, contain those. But then on a more selfish note, it means winter's here, which uh, as I've expressed a few times um, over the course of, of the last 12 months, I've become quite a fan of, uh, of, of ski uh, and, and ski mountaineering. So it means that uh, I can get back into the mountains and get on the skis, which if I, to be quite frank, Bobby, uh, I've been a little, you know, a little lazy over the last uh, the last several months, got a little carried away with work and haven't been, uh, you know, keeping the fitness up as I would like. So I'm sure once I get in the rarefied air of uh, of the Colorado Rockies, I'm probably going to be uh, lacking a little bit. But that's all right. Never to worry. At least I've got the motivation now to get out and get fit. So uh, speaking of getting fit, the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta have been taking place over the last week and it's been some pretty odd, pretty exciting bike racing. I don't think anyone would have expected the result of the uh, Giro d'Italia. But let's go back to stage 16 where we left off last week. Yeah, stage 16 was a big win for Jan Tratnik and his Bahrain McLaren team. They've had some pretty subpar results recently, but when you win a stage of the Grand Tour, you have to say it was a success. It was also really cool seeing uh, young Ben O'Connor from NTT in the front, as that team's been looking for a, a big win as well. 
The GC guys took this one pretty easy, finishing 13 minutes back. But uh, you know, the stage win is is always on tap, and that's that's a priority for these guys. And speaking of Ben Connor, uh, after his breakout performance a couple of years ago at the at the Giro, he sort of has, as you said, been looking for that big win alongside his team. And the next day, gets back in the break, attacks on the final climb early, and gets that win, which was a a, a huge result for him, I think. Um, Given, yeah, given given that given that team is sort of facing uh, facing potential demise by the end of the season, and um, as a young and upcoming Aussie bike rider, it was great to see him at the front of the race. Yeah, they always say if it doesn't work, try and try again, and that's exactly what Beto Connor did. Uh, very impressive fashion there. Yes. And again, another team that didn't win a stage so far, NTT, uh, was given that Giro saving victory that that really couldn't come at a better time. And speaking of young Aussie riders, I feel like we've had over the last sort of five years, we've had a lot of really good young talent coming through, um, but they're just failing to to break through, I think, at that very highest level. They've had some outstanding results and some really strong riding, but I think just being able to stand alone. And stage 18 of the Giro was the opportunity for the young Jai Hindley, who's been, yeah, he's been at the front of, of the under-19, under-23 ranks, but he was able to break through on stage 18 and take the victory from Teo Gagenhart, who that that stage seemed to flip the race right on its head. We saw Wilco Kelderman was looking like the eventual, you know, sort of pretty confirmed winner of the Giro up until this point. He ended up going into the race lead, but man, uh, didn't that race get flipped with that ride from Rowan Dennis on the Stelvio? Yeah, I totally have to agree with you, Gus. You know, this deep in a three-week Grand Tour, this is where everything changed. And much of that has to come to the credit of Rowan Dennis. I, I don't know where it came from or what flip he switched, but what a display of power on the Stelvio and really just put everyone on on the back foot. So, you know, with everything that was going on there, there was a lot of tactical decisions that needed to be made. And I would not have wanted to be Matt Winston or any of the DSs of Team Sunweb having to decide, do they 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 call back Yai for for to to work for for Kelderman or do they just let him be? I think they made the right decision. Ultimately, they did. They won the stage and and was able to go move into first and second in the overall general classification. But man, you know, Teo right there, it was um, maybe a, a foreshadowing of, of what was to come. Yeah, I think you're right. And before we get to what was to come, stage 19 was perhaps more uh, well known for the fact that the riders staged somewhat of a protest um, calling for an incredibly long stage that late in the race to be shortened. Um, and, you know, we heard the the organizer of the Giro, Vengi, kind of be pretty mad, pretty mad about that. But what was a miserable day uh, and a shortened stage was one in a pretty, pretty spectacular ride by Joseph Cerny. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly there. Oh, it definitely looked like a miserable day. And when when protests add to the controversy and the confusion, you know, it, it's this late in the race. It's stage 19. It was supposed to be the longest Grand Tour stage in like a decade. You know, the riders just, you know, decided that they didn't really want to do it. Um, but, you know, protests are so hard to carry off without a hitch, um, especially this late in the race, especially with everyone tired, with their nerves frayed. 
it just wasn't a great situation. And it seemed like there was very poor communication and unity within the Peloton, which is always sadly the case. But let's not take anything away from uh, Yosef Cerny from the CCC team. Uh, another team coming up with a Giro saving victory. And, um, you know, this is a team and organization that looks like they're leaving the sport at the end of the year. Uh, the head of that team, Jim Okowitz, has been around the sport for a very long time, given many American riders uh, a path to the big leagues. And I just wish him the best in the, in the future, even if the, the team is, is not going to be in the peloton next year. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more there, Bobby. And if stage 18 was seen as a bit of an anomaly, these two young riders, Jai Hindley and Teo Gagenhart, you know, being at the front of the race, then stage 20 was lightning striking twice we saw dennis again ripping the race apart and it was the two youngsters Teo and jai that were left um to sprint for victory and Teo this time won out ahead of, of jai putting him on equal time going into the stage 21 time trial what is crazy about this is that these two bike riders were both three minutes 30 and three minutes 40 down on our jai our almeida at the beginning of, of the final week. Who would have thought that a week later, these two riders that were sitting, I think, around 10th and 11th place on the overall classification would now be dead heat going into the final 15-kilometer time trial? Yeah, you know, not enough can be said for that. I mean, that's never happened in our sport before. But again, Rowan Dennis deserves the M- MVP award here. He was just ripping the pedals off the cranks for the second time on those big mountain stages when Teo needed needed that sort of help. And he just shredded everybody. I mean, he wound up finishing third on the stage himself after basically riding the entire climb. So yeah, that that time bonus of of Teo winning, uh, you know, putting them on equal time, it just set up the the time trial showdown of the century. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then uh, stage twenty one, the showdown, of course. Probably to be expected, Filippo Ghana wins his fourth stage of the race, the three time trials plus that mountain stage uh, in the first week to cap off. I mean, just that alone for Team uh, Ineos is exceptional, but it was their seventh win. They have had a crazy Giro d'Italia, and I think not just from a results standpoint, but the way they've raced is totally different to the way that I feel like they've really ever raced before. On the front foot, being aggressive, kind of really as a team, riding far more uh, uh, angrily, I guess, at the front of the bike race, and it's really paid off with it for them. But back to that dead heat, and uh, Teo Gagenhart, really, he 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 uh, put the smack down, took three kilo- three seconds a kilometer out of our young Jai, and ended up taking the overall victory by thirty nine seconds or so. So, an exceptional ride uh, uh, from him there, but. Man, what a uh, what a way to finish a pretty remarkable and I would argue one of the most exciting Grand Tours. I mean, we keep saying this, but it was a damn exciting Grand Tour uh, to to cap off that Giro. Yeah, it really turned to turned out to be like a sudden death penalty shootout where you knew mm. that one of these talented young riders was going to enter that very exclusive club of being a Giro d'Italia champion, and the other one was going to be left disappointed and kind of unfair because both of them had such an amazing amazing race um and and took advantage of the situations that were were put before them but from the start of the time trial it was very clear to me that that Teo 
Gegenhardt was was on a better day. You could just see that he was putting the power down, even though Jai he definitely seemed like he had a better position on the bike, but he was just pushing too high of an RPM. And in the 21st stage of the Giro, you know, you, you need to be putting the power down and not trying to finesse it with the RPM. But, you know, everything that happened there comes back to some something that I learned at a very young age, that no matter where you are on the GC or how tired you are, you have to take each individual time trial as if you had the leader's jersey on your shoulders. And this was the perfect reason why. I don't know how many times Teo or Jai have been in that situation before. But it really came to a for- the forefront here of you know who is more mentally prepared, who's more relaxed, who's checked o- all those boxes going forward, and you know Teo Gigenhart came away with the win. But more to your point about the Ineos Grenadiers team, I mean, what a turnaround! And let's just say the Tour de France was um, not great. And I said in one of those podcasts that we did back then. I said, this is never going to happen again, not with a Dave Brailsford ran team. And man, they, they changed it around pretty, pretty quickly, I would say. So yeah, at the end, they have seven stage wins, uh, the overall victory and, and the team victory. But I don't think anybody, I mean, yes, we feel very sorry for Jai, but you know, I couldn't be happier for Teo Gegenhart. Um, he has so many stories. He, he's come up through, you know, the junior ranks, you know, on Axel Merckx's team. Uh, he actually gave up, he turned down turning pro with, with Sky a year so that he could develop a little bit more. I mean, this kid just made some fantastic decisions and, mm. you know, dreams do come true. And I know he's going to keep his feet on the ground. And there's just another Grand Tour winner on the Ineos Grenadiers team roster for next year, which, you know, could complicate things a little bit more. But one of the coolest things that I saw was Sir Bradley Wiggins posted a message uh, to Teo on Instagram prior to the race. And if you haven't seen it, go back and try to listen to it because it was so inspirational and so cool. It just gave me goosebumps. I, can, I can't imagine what, what if Teo did listen to that, what he was thinking. As you said, it's a it's a, it's a it's a bit of a fairy tale ending there, and and exciting to see. Another thing worth noting was that Jao Almeida, who was also alumni of uh, of Axel's team, was fourth place uh, on the general classification and kind of had a resurgence over the last few stages and and had a really good final time trial. So three young riders in the top four uh, of of a Grand Tour, which you know I know everyone keeps saying this, but if that wasn't uh, you know, confirmation enough that the guard has changed, uh, then I don't know what is. I also think the tour was raced differently. Obviously, the lead switching uh, on the second last stage, you know, and and, uh, and and the winner only riding in the yellow jersey for, for one day. Today, we saw the, the winner of the race never actually got to ride in the pink jersey. Um, is, this, is this a different tactic, a different way that Grand Tours are going to be raced now in the future? A more aggressive kind of... Uh, sort of free for all, I don't know, type of type of racing. Man, you you got me there. I I there's no way I can predict these sort of things. You know, it's it's just been an amazing season. But, you know, just to to wrap up the Giro in my opinion. I mean, the Giro had some very big shoes to fill after what was in my opinion the the best Tour de France ever. You know, they had to deal with the COVID concerns, bad weather, leaders crashing out, you know, leadership changing mid-race, full teams for goodness sake, leaving the race. And 
ultimately uh, a protest. Uh, with the DAX stacked against the Giro this year, I think it turned out to be much, much better than expected. Those young riders seem to deal with all these variables a little bit better than the older generation and kept things in perspective. And yeah, when we see these young guys become household names uh, moving into the future, Teo, of course, gets the big prize for winning the pink jersey and the best young rider. But Jai Hindley, second place, and Joao Almeida, fourth place. That's three young riders in the top four. I don't think that's ever happened before. So great racing. And we can't forget... Arnaud Demar, he had four four wins and he wins the points classification over Sagan. Ruben Guerrero from EF Pro Cycling wins the KOM. He's another alumni, I believe, from from Axel Merckx's team. Uh, Ineos Grenadiers, they win the Team GC. And one of those things that we often forget to mention is there is an award, you know, the Lantern Rouge or the last place finisher. And that goes to Jonathan Devin from Lotto Sudal. I don't think they call it the Lantern Rouge in, in the Giro, but I always have to you know, give props to that guy that that suffered more than most and finished last on GC. Um, the Americans, you know, th- there were some guys there. We had Brandon McNulty finished 15th and got some great Grand Tour experience. Larry Warboss finished in 17th and was a member of many of those breakaway stages. We had Joe Dombrowski finished 43rd. Joey Roscoff finished 64th. And Chad Haga finishing 69th. And obviously, he was doing a lot of work for his two team leaders there. So um, a good representation and some good results, some good experience. Uh, but for me, Brandon McNulty, he was so strong through two weeks. That third week kind of jumped up and nipped him in the butt a little bit. But these, this is something that he's going to learn from. I mean, he finished in you know, the top 15 of his first Grand Tour. That's a phenomenal result. Um, and moving on to the Tour of Spain. And the Tour of Spain did not waste any time getting going. Uh, stage one was a mountaintop finish, and it was run won by Primoz Roglic. Um, the, the Tour of Spain seems like a bit of a Tour de, Tour de France repeat with uh, a lot of the heavy hitters that raced in in France and now here in Spain. and uh, And that first stage was uh, was no joke. No, it was brutal, brutal, brutal start to the to the Tour of Spain this year. And yeah, I mean, Sepp Kuz looked like it was the Tour de France all over again, like just like they didn't miss a, a beat in that that brief interlude between the Tour de France and and the, the Tour of Spain. And, you know, stage two was won by Marc Soler from Movistar. I think that's a much, much needed win for that team. They've been having a, a pretty tough season so far this year. And, you know, winning over Primos and the rest of the GC favorites. Um, stage three, personal favorite, Dan Martin. Israel Startup Nation wins, takes his first win in in a couple years, I believe. And he did it over the big GC contenders. And the funny part about this was, remember, I was at the Hincapi Grand Fondo. So as soon as I was done with my day, I would call up Christian Vanneveld. And he told me the story that that Dan didn't even know he had won the stage, didn't even put his hands up. And, um, right. you know, what a, what, a, what a cool thing. But another win... For Israel Startup Nation, after the great win from Alex Dowsett in the Giro, that team is 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 definitely going places. Stage four, finally, we get a flat one. And as, you know, talking about the Tour de France, Sam Bennett wins in a huge, huge sprint 
And, um, you know, it's just confirmation that that guy is, is really, you know, he's in his prime, right? And, uh, and it's great to see, you know, he's a bit of a people's champ. So good to see him win. Stage five, Tim Wellens, a name we sort of haven't heard for a little while, wins in a much deserved win from a breakaway that, you know, he went all the way to the line to win by a few seconds um, there, which was great to see. And then stage six, another savage day with Eon Izagir winning from a breakaway. And then, uh, which was, you know, pretty miserable weather, but it was a, there was riders everywhere at the finish there. It was kind of hard to keep track of, of what was going on. The GC race really blew apart. Yeah. The big story was what looked like the most miserable day on the bike that you could possibly imagine. It looked like everyone was just freezing. Primoz Roglic had a issue somewhere. I remember this was one of the stages I actually got to watch live and I saw one of his teammates, Robert Gessink, coming up with a musette full of rain jackets and actually dropped one. And it turned out that maybe that was the issue. Maybe they couldn't get their rain jackets on and they they got cold. They got caught out on that descent. They had to use up guys like Sepp Kuss, who's normally reserved for that final climb and all their other kind of climbing domestiques, just to get Primos back on the back to the group after that descent. And listen, you know. There was an issue with improper rain gear and the forcing of the pace by the other GC teams at the bottom. But when you get that cold, it is so hard to come out of that. And, you know, with that sort of, you know, steep, steep climb there at the end, it was just a little bit too much. But um, super bummed for Sep because he wound up losing 10 minutes on GC and we were hoping for a big, you know, result in the general classification for him. But, you know, Primo loses the lead to Richard Carpas. So they win the Giro, you know, they get blanked in the tour. They win the Giro and now they're leading the the Tour of Spain. Ineos Grenadier team is is clicking on all cylinders right now. But I think one of the 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 coolest things there is that Hugh McCarthy from EF Pro Cycling mm. and Dan Martin moved ahead of Primos as well. He's only 30 seconds back at this time and you know, there's a long way to go in this race. I mean, you know, another two weeks. So anything can happen. But, you know, when you get when you get cold like that, nothing can really help. You just got to suffer through it and get to the finish. So I don't know if it was the cold weather or the long season at peak condition getting, you know, catching up to him. But um, like I said, this race is far from over. I'm sure some questions will be answered here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, I think they will be. And, uh, and, we're just, as we're recording this, Stage 7 is running, and I believe Mike Woods has just been the victor there. Yeah, hot off the press. Mike Woods uh, comes through with a, um, a nice attack out of a breakaway there at the end. So EF Pro Cycling coming through with, with another big win, and they also still have Hugh McCarthy up there in, in the overall. So uh, another team looking good here uh, in the last Grand Tour of the year. And with that comes today's guest, since its days as the TR Cref 5280 team, in his local Colorado, Alex Howes has been with Jonathan Vorders. Growing with the team, Alex has now raced five Grand Tours, won a USA professional title, and sits on the board of the Association of North American Professional Road Cyclists. After a long lockdown and the hectic truncated racing season, we sat down with Alex to talk about his career up to this point the interesting alternate program that he's running at EF Education First, and his role in amplifying the rider's voice in the professional peloton. G'day, Alex. How's things? 
Things are great, Gus. Things are great. Currently in Mullica Hill, New Jersey, uh, hanging out with the in-laws. And uh, now I'm hanging out with you guys. Nice, man. Well, it's been a pretty weird season, 2020. You are in South Africa when the season got called off. <laughs> like, how is that being not in your home continent of the US, but then not even in Europe, your second home? You're sort of in this faraway land a little bit down there. Tell me about the scramble to get out of, oh, to get out of South Africa. That, that seems like so long ago. It was a long time ago. I feel like I've lived five or six lives since that part of the season. Yeah, getting out of South Africa was interesting because pandemic hadn't really hit there. It wasn't really a reality. And when we left Europe, it was kind of starting to pop off. Like there was like, I think, 70 cases or something in Spain. And I was like, oh, this could be a thing. And then, uh, yeah, when they hit the lockdown button, we were down there and the um, case numbers were, were blown up. And uh, it's just, yeah, it was kind of surreal. We really didn't have much trouble getting out of there. I mean, it was a long, long haul for nothing. Like we flew down there, didn't race, and then flew, you know, I don't know how long that flight is, like 700 hours home. But it was it was definitely stressful because my wife at the time was in Spain. I say my wife at the time. I mean, she's currently my wife, but she was at the at the time she was in Spain. <laughs> let me uh, afraid, clarify where I put the comma in that sentence. Yeah, she was in Spain and she was trying to get out. And uh, yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, they they had to hit the eject button to get out of there, and that was. I think it took her you know, three days, four days uh, via. A layover in UK and everything to get out, and meanwhile I'm just sitting on an airplane with no cell service, going like, oh, "Well, I hope that works out for." Her. But it worked out; it was fine. Did you come back to the states? What did you do during that shutdown period? Like, I know you've probably been asked this a million times, but like, just in you know, like in general terms, did you kind of come back and keep training, or were you just like, "Well, I'll I'll sort of hang out." Well, I went back to Colorado, and uh, as many people who or, you know, spend time in Colorado. No, uh, in March, it's generally the snowiest part of the year. Uh, and we're up in the mountains. So it was, I mean, we had one day where it snowed two feet on us. So I was, you know, I was kind of training, but I, I wouldn't call it really focused training. And then, yeah, from there, it was just this mental head game battle. It's like, well, do we, do we have a season? Are we going to be racing? Will there be a race? Uh, okay, they say we're going to race. Are we actually going to race? Are we going to be able to get to Europe? Are we not going to be able to get to Europe? And so that that definitely uh, it's 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 hard to uh, really train in a really focused manner when, when you really have no idea what you're doing. Uh, so I was just trying to really enjoy it as much as I could, you know, riding for fun, spend a lot of time on the mountain bike. Yeah, tried to tried to make a bike make make the bike like a place that's not necessarily uh, a stressful place because you know the whole rest of the world was you know a big stress pressure cooker. Like we'll talk more um, later on. We kind of want to go back in time a bit with you, but just before we get there, like talking about are uh, we going to race, um, and it's on, it's off, it's on. I'm interested to know, like, when you did resume racing for you, you're in the states. Like, what was that process like? And I guess what was your concern level? You know, just as a as a human outside of being a cyclist, like with returning to racing, and what was that kind of process like? I guess for you getting back into the groove amidst a pandemic? The hard part was, was like, so we, we basically got told we had to go to Europe at the end of June before they officially closed the border to the U.S. And so, I mean, I literally, I was in New Jersey again and I literally drove three days cross country and then got home and they called me up and they're like, you need to leave tomorrow. 
I was like, well, what? What are you talking about? Like, I've just been sitting in a car for a week. <laughs> like, all right. So then we turned around, flew to the UK and did a, you know, week, week, two week lockdown quarantine there. Uh, and then flew to Spain and did another two week quarantine there. And the whole time we hadn't started racing at that point. It was like, yeah, we, we think it's going to happen. Like, it looks good. And, you know, sitting there riding a trainer in the United Kingdom thinking like, man, this, this better freaking happen. Cause <laughs> like, like what, what are we doing? So I, I mean, for me personally, like racing seemed relatively safe. Uh, I wasn't really worried about that. Uh, as far as, you know, the virus and such goes, I mean, there's obviously a lot of logistics involved with the, the bubble, but to me, the bigger issue was, uh, yeah, getting across borders and, you know, looking at like, I don't know, just, just trying to see the logistics beyond the race. Cause that, that's where it was really complicated, especially somebody who's, who's, you know, not a native European. Man, oh man. Well, I kind of want to go back a little bit. You know, you, you grew up in the Boulder area and you attended CU, which was always the college that I wanted to go to. A lot of my friends went to. What did you actually study there? Uh, I basically studied professional cycling. I registered for classes in the spring and then signed a pro contract in the summer. And so, and I couldn't get out of my fall classes. So I just went because they already took my money. Uh, I only did a semester, Bobby. So, I mean, we can say I went, but I can't say I really, you know, didn't learn much. Let's put it that way. I was, I was in the business school though, which, you know, is actually, you know, kind of tough to get into. So I used to be smart. Well, I'm sure you're still smart. Is there any, um, interest in going back and actually finishing that? And, uh, funny you should say that. Turns out global pandemic and, you know, potential job insecurity really makes you think about, okay, what's next? So yeah, I've been uh, looking at school options and there's definitely interest to do it. I, I'd, I'd like to be able to check the box that says, uh, you know, college degree versus uh, some college education. You know, feels a little better to move up on the, that box level. And what would you, what would you be interested in post-career? And I don't know. I was looking at going back for engineering uh, in some regard, but the math is pretty hard. And it turns out you forget like a ton of stuff, you know, especially when you just you know, bonk yourself out of oblivion and, um, you know, fall on your head a bunch of times over the last decade and a half. But yeah, I don't know, potentially uh, something within business. We'll see. So you mentioned there that you, you know, you enrolled in school, but you signed a, a pro contract not long after. You've been... That that pro contract was was with Slipstream in in one of its iterations at the time. But you've been with that program since you were a, a wee boy, bar a short stint away from that program. Before we get into like the Slipstream program and how you've been there for forever, I think everyone knows you as this stalwart at Slipstream. But that year away was, I guess, pretty formative in many ways for you. Um, I'm interested to hear about you being a US rider on on a on a French team. Yeah, that was that was a tough year for me in a lot of ways. I mean, I was, I was super young. I guess I was what twenty, and <laughs> I don't know. It was you think about how hard life can be when you're twenty, just like living your life. I don't know, going to school or whatever, and then you just I, I don't know. Then on top of that, I was basically threw myself into a situation where I didn't know the language at all. I had no idea what was going on with culture. I had no idea how things work day to day. Uh, you know, even in your own country, you're just kind of starting to get a grasp of how things work uh, at the age of 20. And then you go, you know, just move into a new country and you're like, wow, I, I have no clue what's going on. Uh, and then on top of that, I was trying to race, uh, racing full time. So 
it didn't go well, if I'm honest, which is fine because I learned a lot. And quite frankly, I think it, it really, it did change kind of the direction of the development team when I came back because I was, you know, kind of one of the, the head guys there. And it was like, everybody would you know complain about X, Y, Z. And I'm like, yeah, well, at least we speak the language here, guys. So like, shut the hell up. You know, or they complain about this and that. And it's like, yeah, well, when I was on the palm, they gave you how much food you're supposed to eat in the race. And if you didn't, if you needed more than that, then you just lost. So, <laughs> like, yeah. just little, little things like that, you know, and it's like, I think it really changed the attitude of the development team. And, you know, it's probably why Lachlan Morton's as good as he is now because of <laughs> that, that one year that I did on La Palm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I believe that you're the only writer who started his career with JV who's still active in the Peloton. I mean, going all the way back to, what was it, the 5280 days. Tell us, I mean, that's pretty cool to have that sort of connection besides that one learning year over in, in France. Tell us about your experiences over the year with, with JV and maybe tell us a little bit about him and why you've stuck around for so long. Um, I mean, it originally started up just because he was, you know, he's a Colorado guy. I'm a Colorado guy. Uh, he had that, had the junior team and then later the U23 team and professional team uh, based out of Colorado. So it was, I guess, easy for me. Uh, it was a pretty natural, natural pick, but it has been, it's, it's been fun to see the team evolve over the years because JV might not like to admit it, but it, at heart, he's a bike racer and he's very disorganized. And to see the team sort of go from uh, this, you know, literal bootstrap kind of back of the van, like, Oh, I hope we, I hope we have enough gas to get to the race kind of organization. Uh, I mean, it's really, it's really proed up. Uh, and certainly with the addition of EF, like it's, um, I mean, I would say we're one of the, one of the better teams in the world tour, uh, maybe not directly results wise, but uh, certainly as an organization and how we function as a team, uh, I, I think we're one of the better ones out there and it, it shows, I mean, people, people like the team, people follow the team. And I think, you know, sponsors get a huge, uh, return on their investment there. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun watching the team evolve and in saying that it's been fun watching JV evolve, you know, like he always had the suits and the, the, the plaid pants to make people think he was pro. But I think at this point he, uh, he's a very legitimate, uh, general manager. Oh, that he is. I mean, when you have a team that lasts that long, obviously you're you're doing something right. But you've ridden five Grand Tours in your career. You've done a Giro, two Tours, and two Vueltas, and you finished them all, which is pretty impressive. I don't know how many people have finished all the Grand Tours that they started. But which which of those three Grand Tours is your favorite race and, and why? And do you have that special Grand Tour memory that really sticks out? I really enjoy the Vuelta, uh, to be honest. Like, Again, it goes back to kind of, you know, speaking the language. Like I speak Spanish relatively well. I don't know. I feel like I connect better with the Spanish fans and vice versa. And then we get to race on a lot of the roads that, that we, we know and, you know, just through races like Catalonia and Basque and then various training camps and stuff. So I, I don't know. I really enjoy the Vuelta. As far as like special memories, it was pretty cool. I was <laughs> It's 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 a stupid one, but like I was on the breakaway on stage one in 2016. You know, we we're trying to get the polka dot jersey. It didn't work out. Yeah, just one of those like shameless. Let's jump out there and try and grab it on the first day things. But didn't get the jersey. Uh, but I was like, you know, leading the race because I was in the breakaway, and I think I was, you know, it was me and another guy that 
got caught last, but like so many people were like, dude, you were literally winning the tour de France. Like that day you were the first guy out there. You're like winning the tour de France. And like, Bobby, you'll understand this. And Gus, you probably will as well. Uh, American fans, you know, like it doesn't matter if there's 21 stages to go, 3,400 kilometers left in the race. Like if you were winning it, you were winning it, you know, like <laughs> and it's back home. Everybody's like, man, you almost got it. Huh? He's like, no, I didn't almost get it. But yes, I was technically winning the tour de France for like 50 K. So I guess that's something. <laughs> There is a funny thing, like as you know, when you've been indoctrinated into the sport and you've done the, you've done it forever or you've spectated it forever, it's like you get caught up in the in the complicated nature of the sport. So it's kind of like it's actually nice. Like I do, I remember that that stage, but it is nice to think of that when people who don't necessarily pay attention to anything really but the Tour de France and they're you know and they're like they're avid sports fans in in a more general context and they watch the race and they're like. And they kind of remind you there is like there is sort of that, that you were winning it for a, a brief period, and there was like you know there was a period there that you had more chance of winning the stage than anyone else in the race, right? Oh yeah, um, for sure. So it's kind of I mean I was like in the nice. local newspaper. They're like they put my name in there. It was like Alex House was leading the Tour de France for seventy kilometers, and they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is it is funny to think of that. You know, you've been with the same team as we said for for most of your career, and you've and you've had some you know pretty outstanding results throughout the time. But like 2018, 2019 were two pretty big years for you. Before we get to 2019 and, and winning that national title, you were struggling with some pretty major health issues. Um, you know, to the point where you were like, maybe this is the end of my career. Maybe my time's up as a cyclist. Um, I'm interested to hear what the issue was and then how did you manage to get things back on track to the point where, you know, sort of within like a six, eight-month period, you were U.S. national champion, something you'd kind of been chasing for, for quite a while? Uh, yeah, I was uh, diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, uh, Graves' disease. Yeah, and like lost a ton of weight just sort of out of nowhere. Wasn't feeling good on the bike, wasn't feeling good off the bike. Uh, when I say wasn't feeling good, like, I mean, I felt like total shit. And yeah, it was, it was like, I don't know. They, they told me what it was. They were like, okay, this is the treatment. Um, and then, you know, I was, kind of had this moment where it's like, well, okay, well, I mean, it, I understand the treatment works great if you're, you know, working in an office, but like, is this going to work out for, you know, somebody trying to, win professional cycling races. Um, and so there's, it was a big unknown. And I was you know, thinking about quitting, to be honest with you, looking at options, uh, post-cycling pretty seriously. But at the time, I had another year on my contract. And I was like, well, let's just see how it goes, I guess. Got going. It's feeling all right. Uh, after, after the meds were kicking in, put some weight back on. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just kind of realized, like, I, I really love this. You know, it's like... Like you almost, I almost lost it. And I was like, man, actually, I really do love this. You know, like I love the training. I really love the goals. You know, you have a goal and you work towards it. And just, just the lifestyle and like, you know, the group of people that I had around me. I was like, all right, let's do this. And I, just, I don't know, really doubled down. And quite frankly, having the, the Rafa alternative program, um, you know, getting to get a chance to kind of spice up the usual schedule as well um, was a bit of a, breath of fresh air at a, at a great time and uh i don't know it kind of all came together in june there with nationals so and before we get to the before we get to the alternate program 
on the on the national championship. So in June 2019, you became U.S. national champion. Fast forward 12 months, there's no U.S. nationals because of uh, global pandemic. Are you still technically the the U.S. champion? Are you still able to wear the jersey into 2021? What's the what's the go there? I'm still the guy. I mean, you know, I can't uh, can't take it until they take it. You know, nobody nobody's <laughs> defeated me, so <laughs> still, yeah, still got the jersey. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's a shame. Like I, I, I would rather have raced it, quite frankly. But at the same time, yeah, they were, they were talking about having nationals at the in, I guess the end of August. And they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. And I was like, man, that, that would really suck because that would mean I'd do like five races in the jersey, and then there we go. So, well, assuming I didn't win it again, you know, you never know. And then, so you just mentioned the the EF like alternate program, they kicked that off in 2019, which it was sort of you, Lockie, initially Taylor Finney as well. You said it was a breath of fresh air. Like what do you get out of that type of a program? How that program was received firstly within the team, within the peloton? How did the other riders see it? You know, road, road racing is, I mean, it's, it's one skill, you know, essentially. It's like, you know, you, you can race on the road and, that's what you do. But, uh, I mean, most road ra- racers at a professional level have quite a bit of skill in, in other aspects, whether that's on the track or, uh, on, you know, gravel cross, whatever, or on the mountain bike. So it was, it was fun to sort of, not only for us to go out there and explore, you know, what other skills we might have, but to kind of help, maybe help inspire some of the other pro riders. Uh, it's like, Hey, you know, get out there and, you know, try it out, you know, go do the stupid, race on the beach in the Netherlands, you know, why not? And it was, in that regard, I think it was really received well from really any, any pro racers that I spoke with. It <laughs> kind of gave them the excuse, uh, certainly within their teams, to be like, look, you know, like, these guys are doing it. Why, why you know, why can't I do it? Why, why can't I step outside the lines, you know, especially in the off-season or something and try something out? So, uh, yeah, I think it worked exceptionally well. And in a lot of ways, I think we got out of it what we wanted to. You know, we wanted to engage with, you know, fan base in a different way, uh, sort of meet people where they were at, where they were at and show them that, I don't know, professional racers are more than just, you know, cardboard cutouts. But yeah, I mean, I hope we, I hope we keep going with it more, but, uh, we'll see how this pandemic shapes things going forward. Well, I have to say that whole program and the name yourself and the other names that, that Gus mentioned did motivate a lot of people, including myself and, I consider myself and Gus, you know, Cat 5 gravel riders. And um, tell us a little bit more about those specific events and why the gravel scene is just seeing such a spike in participation. I mean, seeing you do it was like, hey, you know, this is something that maybe we should look at. But there's always that hesitance, especially from a a roadie like myself. But um, to an aspiring gravel rider such as myself... What are some of those tips that you can share with us to make sure that we enjoy these events? First, I think the big reason why gravel is, is done as well as it has is one, one, it's a challenge. Like it's, it's an approachable challenge. It's, it's kind of like what, what the marathon was, um, a few years back here, you know, it's something hard, you know, 200 miles of Kansas, like that's hard, but it's something people can do. And I think, yeah, you could, you could do it on roads, but, uh, just the nature of gravel. It's like, that's where the cars aren't generally. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why people don't want to ride bikes in America. 
uh, is afraid of cars. And so if you can kind of reduce that, then yeah, you've gone a long way and yeah, mountain bikes, there's no cars there, but you know, the technical aspects of it, uh, can be quite challenging. It's a relatively easy, very hard challenge. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Just to confuse everybody. But as far as getting the most out of these events, um, for, for cat five, Bobby and, uh, Angus. Yeah. I, I think you got, you, you go into them with an open mind first and foremost. Um, you know, you don't really know each, each one of the races is completely different. There's a lot of different test technical aspects to them, but you go into it with an open mind. You figure you're going to be out there for a long time and, uh, you just try and enjoy it as much as you can and make sure you bring enough water. <laughs> well, I'm going to pick your brain on some specific things because I need to learn as well. So I have a couple just quick questions, if you can answer them for me. What is your preferred wheel size for the gravel? Because I know there's a couple different sizes. What what do you prefer to use? Uh, I like 700C. I think they roll quite a bit better. Um, and definitely like for racing, I mean, generally you're not going to see courses that are going to be technical enough for 650B with like a 47C tire. So yeah, we'll go 700C. Plus it's, you know, it just looks classic, you know. And with that 700C, what is the size of the tire that you're using? And what is your tire pressure that you can suggest to those newbies like myself? I think, yeah, like a 42C tire. Yeah, you can go a little narrower and get maybe a little lighter tire for some courses. But like a 42C, you're you know, pretty much checking all the boxes and you'll, you'll get through pretty much everything. I run pretty low pressure like 37, uh, but I'm pretty kind of scrawny. So, I mean, yeah, somewhere around, for most people, probably 40, 41, maybe 42. Like, it's it's lower than you'd think. Uh, and if you get scared about the low pressure, yeah, you can get, like, uh, the inserts for the inside of your tires, keep you from crunching your rims, which, I, I don't know, I think those things are great, uh, honestly. And you're tubeless. You yeah. run tubeless. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you do, yeah, like a tubeless with like a, uh, what do you, what would, what would you call that? It's a, like a foam insert. Yeah. Like a foam insert. I don't know. There's multiple no. brands there, but yeah, you have the foam insert. And then if you do get a flat, you can run them, run them, uh, run them flat if you absolutely have to. If you want mm -hmm. a real tip, Bobby, you got to run tubeless and you got to figure out how to use tire plugs, figure out those tire plugs. I don't even know what that is. A tire yeah. plug. So there you go. Wow, yeah. I'm uh, I'm I'm definitely right. getting some good Got stuff some here. Research to do. Yeah, yeah. foam down. inserts and tire plugs. Okay, and then <laughs> on your preferred gravel bike, are you a one by or a two by? I I run a two by, but that's you know also generally because when I show up, they don't let me not race. And they, you know, people want me to pedal fast. But I, I think for simplicity's sake, uh, the one by is definitely the way to go. And honestly, if I had the right gear ratio set up available to me i probably would run a one by just because it's it's so much simpler and again looks matter it looks better uh yeah and you're never going to bust that front derailleur off you're not going to get it clogged up with mud so okay so using a two by what is what is the optimum rear cassette ratio that you use when you're running a two by so you're asking these directly for you these questions yes yeah. absolutely yeah, this, I, is I, like, I, this is Bobby's yes. like literally like okay um, like, Bobby's like I have a two by so I, I need to know. pump a pro for you know it's you know I ride with George Hincapie and Christian Vanneveld 
a lot and they they have one buys so they're no help so i i I'm, i gotta ask a pro here i mean i would say the big thing is to get uh in the back end you want like a one one to one gear ratio um so like if you have a 34 up front you'd want like a 34 in the back if that makes sense um just just because you, yeah you're gonna go up some steeper stuff and then you also have to remember that with gravel you're running uh like your tires are quite a bit taller. And so that, that sort of changes your overall gear ratio as well. Like, you, you, you know, it's like junior days when you used to run like 19 C tires so you could pass the rollout. Um, it's the same, same sort of deal, uh, except you're adding a larger tire. So you, you definitely want to make sure you have that smaller gear ratio in the back. Great answer. Great answer. Okay, now we'll get Smart. to more, more of the, uh, the geeky side of things. How important... Oh, that, was, that wasn't the geeky side? No, I mean that that was the technical side. Now we're talking about like straight on fueling strategies. What is how important is the fueling strategy in these events and what is an example of the fueling strategy that you would suggest to people doing these off-road longer races? I think the biggest thing is hydration. You know, you hear a lot of people like, "Oh, I just couldn't eat that last bar or whatever." And usually it's cuz their stomach is like so knotted up with dehydration that, you know, nothing's going to go in there. So, yeah, I mean, the big thing is you want something that's replacing the electrolytes that you're, you're sweating out. You don't need to go crazy, crazy with, uh, you know, salt tablets or, I don't know, drink eating magnesium blocks or something stupid. But you definitely want, you know, a good sports drink, you know, sponsor plug here, Scratch, great stuff. They're uh, no-nonsense, uh, pretty basic. So, yeah, you want to get something that you want to adequately hydrate. And then on top of that, basically eat whatever feels good for me personally. Like I could eat like 15 Snickers bars in like three hours if I had to. I'm not sponsored by Snickers, so you can beep that out, I guess. Hydrate and just chow. Um, I don't. I, I think it's a mistake to go overboard with like the over scientific foods. Uh, you know, you don't need like to be eating 19 gels over the course of 20 hours. Like that's not going to do your body any good. I mean, you kind of got to think also, like, what what would I eat if I was just eating throughout the day normally? Like, I don't know anybody that eats 19 gels in a day just on a day-to-day life. Like, it's just not 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 going to work out. Okay, and then last question here, and I'm asking for a friend. Is it, accept, is it accepted uh, in the pellet, you know, the gravel scene to have a camelback, or is that looked like down upon? Uh, I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about the gravel scene is that, like, it's very libertarian in that regard. Uh, you do you, Bobby, you know, or your friend. Uh, your friend should do whatever Absolutely. they want to do. Yeah, his name um, is Joe. His name is yeah. Joe. Yeah, he asked uh, me to ask that. If Bobby Joe wants to wear a camelback, he can wear a camelback. <laughs> uh, if, if you want to wear arm warmers uh, with a vest and no shirt underneath it, you can do that if you want because UCI is not going to come down on your head for not having sleeves. Bobby Joe's friends might give him some shit, but you can do whatever you want. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. So, yeah, uh, I, I would recommend it. Yeah, go for it. And then speaking about, as we were talking at the head of the show, you were in South Africa when the pandemic hit. You were about to race the Cape Epic, um, which is an eight-stage, kind of considered the Tour de France of mountain bike races in terms of its endurance um, and, and, and how difficult the race is. 
What does 2021 hold for the alternate program? Are you guys going to try and head back there? I mean, obviously, things are a little <laughs> up in the air, but are you going to try and, you know, is, is, is this program going to continue into 2021? Um, and um, do you have any kind of idea of what events you might be doing? Funny you should ask that. Uh, I, we scheduled the call too early here. Um, I'm actually <laughs> going to be on the phone with Rafa here in like an hour talking about that a little bit more. Uh, but the fact that I'm going to be on the phone with them talking about this, that probably means that this is going to continue into t- 2021. Um, so yeah, we're going to, we're going to be out there 2021 mixing it up personally. Cape Epic's been on, been on the bucket list ever since I was like just a little kid. Uh, always want to do it. Uh, it's like absolutely heartbroken that it didn't work out last year or this year. Um, and yeah, would really like to go back in uh, 2021 and take a crack at it. I don't know. It, it it intrigues me and terrifies me at the same time. So that's what that's what races are supposed to do, right? Well, yeah. we'll be we'll be following that for sure. So let us know. Um, you know, Gus and I are going to be booking our our tickets to do those those sort of events and get a little taste of the gravel scene. But I wanted to to switch gears a little bit because there is. You know, we had the the Giro d'Italia recently finish, and there is an association called the CPA, the Cyclist Professional Associates, which is an international nonprofit association that safeguards the interests of the professional riders, which is headed up by Johnny Buno as president and Pascal Chantour as vice president. I understand that you're on the North American board of the CPA, which is another acronym, the ANAPRC, which stands for the Association of North American Professional Road Cyclists, which was created uh, back in 2014. With what happened in stage 19 of the Giro this year, um, ultimately ending in the stage being shortened, uh, it seemed to be chaotic. Um, I'm curious if you have any inside information or just your take on the situation and what can be done in order to avoid this sort of confusion in the future. Yeah, I, the way the Giro, I guess we'll, we'll call it a protest, uh, reroute, uh, the way that happened was certainly not ideal. I don't think that it's, it was necessarily you know, unfounded. You, know, you, look at, you look at the race as a whole, uh, look at the season as a whole, that was kind of just one of the, there was too many straws in the camel's back uh, by the time we got there. Um, and <laughs> quite frankly, like we'll, we'll see how things pan out for the Jira or the uh, Welta here going forward. You know, people are, people are tired. People are under a lot of stress. Um, so certainly not ideal, but I think, I think the way to me, it really just highlights the issues that we have within the CPA. You know, the, the fact is that the way, changes are made the way the way it's structured is it's national associations um and these national associations vote on various things and so your delegate will will hold the votes uh, for the entire nation so when we go ahead and vote on something you know the french delegate will have 170 votes the spanish delegate will have uh, i don't know we'll call it like 100 or something however many riders they have within that association and that was the whole reason we started the ana prc was because we had no votes as North Americans, we were completely silenced with you know, any regards to, to our national or to our cycling association. So we started the NAPRC so we could actually have a bit of a voice. But even as it stands now, like you know, I think we have 
20 boats or something like that. But the big issue is it's pretty hard to start your own national association, national federation, or not federation, but you know, national union group. Um, I mean, it's, it's taken us six years to really get where we are now. It took us probably three years just to get it off the ground. So it, it makes no sense for Lithuania to start their own group or, you know, Slovenia has, you know, six riders or something like that, seven riders. Three of them are the best in the world, two of them. You know, and there's, there's, you know, I, the list goes on and on and on of, of unrepresented riders within the, within the union. And I think that the big reason why we see this disconnect between how the CPA functions and what they say versus what the riders want and what the riders say is the fact that the majority of the riders are not represented within the CPA. Um, the voting structures, a mess to be you know, nice. <laughs> um, and until we get that voting structure you know, corrected to where individual riders have an appropriate say within the CPA, um, you're going to see a disconnect uh, between the riders on the road and the CPA uh, in the office. And really, it, you know, it's, it's bad for the riders, but it's bad for the sport as a whole uh, when the riders are not organized and have a, a clear sort of unified voice. And then, so speaking about that, we've seen in in the women's in the women's um, peloton the formation of a of a separate union called the Cyclist Alliance, um, and that's kind of not the official union, but they have quite a number of of high profile athletes that are signed up to that. And then we saw during the tour, or just before the tour, we saw a bunch of riders kind of sign up to pledge their allegiance to like an independent kind of voice. Do you see there being a movement outside of the CPA to unionize from the riders. And I'm interested to hear if you think that something like that is potentially necessary in order to stand up against the likes of, you know, we saw um, Bengi who runs the Giro. He was like very outspoken and mad towards the, towards the athletes um, in their protest, which seems to me kind of a bit of an arrogant and myopic point of view, to be honest, because he needs the athletes in order to run the event. But at the same time, the athletes don't seem to have any power now. And I'm wondering if, if you see that the need to be a movement outside of the CPA in order to take some power back. Yeah, I mean, before the Tour de France, that letter that went around, um, I mean, it was calling for, what it was calling for was one rider, one boat. Um, mm-hmm. It was calling, calling for, yeah, sort of streamlining the you know, voting process and doing away with these national block voting systems. Yeah, at the NAAPRC, we've put together, you know, a couple of proposals now um, for voting structures that basically gotten shuffled to the bottom of the CPA's inbox. But whether or not it needs to happen outside the CPA, I'm not sure, but certainly it does need to happen. Uh, I mean, even Ben Gee was saying, um, I think it was yesterday, he was saying, you know, the riders' unions, they need to figure themselves out. They need to get organized um, because these discussions need to happen behind you know, at a boardroom, not out on the street. And it's like, yeah, you're hundred percent right. You know, this, <laughs> these sort of things need to get dialed in, um, well beforehand. Uh, I mean, personally, like I think, you know, the UCI's calendar that we had this year, um, I, I think it was a huge mistake. I mean, it was, we stretched ourselves mm-hmm. so thin. Um, and you know, really we've gotten incredibly lucky with how things have played out. Um, I think, I think it would be better if we had, sort of known we were going into a, you know, 
the mess that we were and like, all right, let's, let's get a few, you know, good, easy wins here for cycling. Um, and then step aside before we shoot ourselves on the foot. Uh, and generally that's somewhere where a cycling union, I hate to say union, but like, yeah, cycling union would say, you know, all right, this is, this is how we feel. This is what we, we think is right. This is what we think, uh, our riders can handle. Um, let's, let's negotiate from here. But instead it, you know, basically came to a boiling point stage 19 of the Giro, uh, which is not where it needs to happen. But yeah, I, I think the, the momentum is there and, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if it happens within the CPA or if it needs to happen outside. We've definitely been talking to the people of the cycling Alliance, uh, just getting their opinions on, on how, what sort of progress they've made and, and how they've done it. Um, and honestly, they've done great work and I wouldn't be surprised if they're sort of piece of the puzzle moving forward uh, within the UCI structure. Hearing that, you know, what do you think about the future of, of USA Cycling, both from like an organization perspective, but then also too, like from a, from a racing perspective, um, we've seen, you know, the domestic scene here, 2020 aside, obviously, but it's been on decline. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on what the future of, of the sport holds in the US going forward yeah um i mean that doesn't necessarily apply within the a naprc uh ideally the naprc north american riders union ideally that goes away uh we can just dissolve that once we have mm. appropriate representation within the cpa we have a i mean the whole reason we started was to have a more inclusive cpa uh but as far as the state of US, usa cycling goes i don't know man uh it's it's this weird we're in this weird spot where you know, more people are riding bikes than ever. Um, Bobby's friend Joe has started up. Um, you know, people come out of the woodworks and certainly with quarantine and everything, you know, more like, I mean, you can't even buy a bike anymore. It's crazy. Um, people love it, but at the same time, it's hard and it's expensive to put on races in America. I think that's one of the successes that why gravel has had success is it's, it's cheaper, uh, to put on these events. Um, you, you take them to these places where, you know, they're not having trying to have gravel races in downtown city areas. They're, you know, generally on open roads, <laughs> you know, but nobody really drives on them. It's tricky to see where USA Cycling will go. I don't, I don't know if we'll see World Tour teams recruiting guys from gravel races, sort of like what we were seeing with, you know, Colin Strickland uh, after winning Kansas last year, or if we're going to just see cycling in America become a totally different, maybe non-professional entirely sort of thing. I don't know. We'll see. It's, it's hard to say. Uh, there's certainly a lot of talent in America and more people riding bikes makes for more people racing. So we'll see. Well, Alex, um, we've definitely overstepped our, our time with, with you today. And I understand that you got another call to get to. So thank you very much for coming on, put your socks on. It's always great talking to someone with you know so such so, so, so much experience in so many different ways trying to do great things for the sport while trying to to perform at the same time so thank you very much for allocating some of your time today with us yeah bobby thank you and that's it everyone that's all the time we have for this week 
Hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks again to Alex Howes of EF Pro Cycling for joining us. You can find all of our past episodes, as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. And you can reach out to us on social media at that is Gus on uh, Instagram and at Bobby.Julik there as well. Please get in touch. We appreciate uh, any feedback, any suggestions. Keep those coming. Uh, that's all for me this week. I'm Bobby Julik. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Just reminding you to stay safe. Stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. Happy peanut soul over chocolate-covered mountaintops and waterfalls of caramel. Prancing nougat in the meadow sings a song of satisfaction too.